Father, we thank you for your word and we do pray that everything we do tonight, what we think, what we say, how we respond will be for your glory and our joy. Amen. Uh, There are certain stories uh, which I love to read, Uh, particularly stories where people stand up amongst the crowd where everyone gives in. Uh, I've heard a story recently of uh, Richard and Sabina Wormbrand. There's a picture on the screen of them. Uh, They are uh, Romanian Christians. And uh, during the time of World War II, the German forces entered Romania. And they took over. And they said, you are not allowed to talk about Jesus. And so what did they do? They talked about Jesus on the streets and to their friends. And so they were arrested, both of them, and beaten. When they eventually got out of prison, uh, the war had ended and uh, the Communist Party got all the, uh, all the uh, religious leaders together, about 4,000 of them, and said, you must pledge allegiance to the Communist Party. And so one by one, each religious leader did so. And Sabina turned to her husband and said, you need to wipe the shame off Jesus' face. And so Richard stood up and he said, we are loyal only to Jesus. And because of that, he was sent to prison again and Sabina sent to do forced manual labour. For eight and a half years, Richard was in prison, three of those in solitary confinement, all by himself, no people, no contact, no light. His wife was told that he was dead. Eventually, when they were released, uh, they started an organisation called Voice of the Martyrs, which you prayed for and which we here at Church by the Bridge support. I hear stories like that, and I'm just amazed by them. I don't know about you, but I, I ask the question, what made them do it? Why did they stand up? What, what motivated them to speak? What, what kept them going? particularly in those dark, lonely days of imprisonment. Now, I like stories like that, but to be honest, they're theoretical for me. They're sort of at a distance. I I don't know what what that's like. But yet, I heard one of the quotes, one of the mottos of the organisation they started, Voice of the Martyrs, and it goes like this. It's on the screen. That we, the Western church, need the persecuted church more than they need us. That we need the persecuted church more than the persecuted church needs us. And that confused the living day outside of me. I thought, what? Surely Richard and Sabina need our help, our prayers, our financial, our, our backing. But not so. I don't know if that quote has confused you like it has me, but we're going to see in Daniel chapter 3 why that is the case, why that statement is correct. Hopefully have your Bibles open. Uh, In Daniel 3, this epic chapter begins quite abruptly. It says in verse 1, King Nebuchadnezzar made a gold statue. And this statue is massive in every way possible. And why does he make it? Well, we're not really sure. He might be insecure. Sort of the dream from chapter 2 is creating this bit of anxiety within him, thinking, oh, the empires are coming. And so he wants total devotion, total loyalty from his people. Who knows? But what he does is he calls all the government employees. In verse 2, the satraps, the prefects, the governors, advisors, treasurers, judges, magistrates, etc. Which included Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego. 
or a bendigo. We're not sure how to say it properly. It's a dead language, it's all right. We'll make it up. I'll call him a bendigo, actually. But the command was clear. When you heard the music, verse 5, fall down and worship. Now, if you were a Jew, if you were one of God's people, this was a clear violation of the first of the Ten Commandments, which is you were to have no other gods but me. In Daniel chapter 1, Daniel not eating the food and the wine was a bit ambiguous. In Daniel 2, the danger came from an occupational hazard. But here, in chapter 3, the decision, the choice rather, was before them, was clear. Will you worship God or will you worship an idol? And the pressure these guys were been under would have been immense, coming from all different angles. The pressure of authority. That phrase, King Nebuchadnezzar, is mentioned six times. King Nebuchadnezzar, King Nebuchadnezzar, King Nebuchadnezzar. Conveying the idea that he is the boss and you are not. That he has power and you are insignificant. The pressure of conformity. Verse 7, when all the people heard the sound of the horn, the flute, the zither, the lyre, the harp, and every kind of music, people of every nation and language fell down and worshipped the gold statue. Just like that. Everyone fell down and showed their devotion, their loyalty to the state. I'll do a bit of an experiment. Can I get you to put a hand up, either hand, in the air? Just either one of them. Just raise your hand. See, there's a pool, right, for us to do what everyone else around us does. I mean, this is a safe place and we all just did it. Okay, put your hands down. It's all right. Can you imagine being amongst thousands of people where everyone's on the floor bowing down and you're standing up. That invisible pull to get you down is strong, to be like everyone else. There's the pressure of intimidation. Verse 6, immediately, if you don't bow, you'll be thrown into a furnace of blazing fire. The consequence of refusing is roasting alive. Worship or die. Two options. The, the pressure these guys would have been under would have been immense. We cannot even imagine what that's like. The, the fear, the, the sweat, the trembling that they're going through. This is what is called persecution, the, the oppression of Christians. Now, it's important to realize that this is not just an ancient history thing. I don't know if you realize, but uh, at this moment... Uh, there are 20, sorry, 270 Christians killed for their faith today, in 2017. Which makes it about, about 15 Christians will be killed, martyred for their faith during the service around the world. The choice of worship to die is well and truly alive in our time. And now most, Christ, most Aussie Christians will say, yeah, but... Persecution doesn't happen in this country. Have you said that? Have you heard that being said? Now that's true, it's right, and it's also wrong at the same time. It's true in the sense that uh, being a Christian here, you don't experience persecution uh, like they do elsewhere. In other parts of this country, the Christians are being beheaded, imprisoned, that kind of thing. And there's a distinction, right? What they experience is vastly different to what we experience. And yet, it's not right in the sense of, I can introduce you to Christians here in Sydney that when they became a Christian, they were beaten by their family. They were written out of wills. They were abandoned. Even my own uh, dad, when he became a Christian, his mother wept every day for a year at the shame of it. 
Now, granted, uh, those who I'm talking about came from Muslim or Buddhist or Catholic backgrounds. Uh, but it's important to realize that persecution does happen in Sydney. And some say, and I, I tend to agree with them, that the Western world is catching up with the non-Western world in their treatment of Christians, bit by bit. Uh, my dad is a minister of a church, and, after, and people often ask him, uh, you know, where do you see your son being a minister? You know, where do you see him in the future? What do you think he'll be doing? He said, ah, oh, jokingly, he'll probably be in prison. Here's how high hopes for me. Uh, but, uh, and whether he's right or not, who knows? Whether being a pastor in this country will end up in prison, who knows? But what is important is this. Regardless of what happens, we should not be surprised. If you're a Christian, you should not be surprised if persecution comes. Because Jesus wasn't exaggerating when he said, if the world hates you, understand that it hated me before you. He wasn't lying when he said, if they persecuted me, they're going to persecute you. When Paul said, anyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. It's not an option. It's not an add-on. Now, some of you who are Christian might be thinking, no one ever told me that. When I signed up to be a Christian, that was left out. That must have been the fine print somewhere. And this may well and surely be a surprise to you. So as you, as you think about that, as you mull that over, let's have a look at how these three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, Abednego uh, respond to persecution, right? They, for a start, know they're experiencing actual persecution. In verse 8, it says, Some Chaldeans, so some of the wise men, took this occasion to come forward and maliciously accuse the Jews. They selected these three men. And now, why did they select them? If you have a look at the first couple of chapters, these guys are, are, are gentle, are, are humble, are polite men who love their enemies, who actually spare their own lives, who save their own lives, rather. But they are malicious. That word comes from a, the idea of ripping pieces of flesh of someone else, the intent to do harm. There is no rhyme, there is no reason, they just wanted to hurt these guys. And if you're a Christian, some people will slander you, will mock you, will tease you for no other reason than simply you're a Christian. Now, but 1 Peter 4 is helpful at this moment. Because in 1 Peter 4 it says, don't be surprised if persecution comes, but you can't call it persecution if you're a liar, if, if you're a thief, if you're an evildoer, right? You can't say, well, I lost my job today. They fired me. Why? Because I'm a Christian. I'm being persecuted. And you scratch beneath the surface and you realize, actually, you're just bad at your job and you kept stealing office supplies. You can't claim persecution. Or you can't say, my parents, they hate me. They're angry with me. Must because I'm a Christian. I'm being persecuted. When you find out, you're just lazy and you keep asking them for money. You know, get to the real source of the, the problem here, right? But at the end of the day, don't be surprised if people make up lies about you, if people intent, intentionally try and do you harm because of your faith. Because when you look at Jesus Christ, there was no rhyme or reason why he was persecuted. I mean, he loved lavishly people around him, and yet they literally stripped pieces of flesh off him on that cross. And these three guys, uh, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they have a bold answer, don't they, to the hope that they have? As these men are brought before King Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar loses the plot. He is furious. This is the most powerful man in the world, and yet these three men 
will not acknowledge that. And so, but he gives him the benefit of the doubt. He puts the two options before them. He says, worship or die. And what do they say? Verse 16, Nebuchadnezzar, we don't need to give you an answer to this question. If the God we serve exists, then he can rescue us from the furnace of the blazing fire, and he can rescue us from the power of you, the king. Now that is a daring and bold statement, isn't it? These guys know who their God is. They have a clear answer that nothing is impossible for him, and no threat, no king, no fire can change that. There is no ambiguity here. They have absolute trust in God. But then come, I think, one of the most remarkable words in this whole chapter. In verse 18, but even if he does not rescue us, say that again, but even if he does not rescue us, we want you as king to know that we will not serve your gods or worship the gold statue you set up. They know that nothing is impossible for God, but... Their faith was not conditional. Regardless of what happens next, they say, we will trust God. Now, notice they don't manipulate God. They don't say, well, we stood up when everyone bowed down, so come on, don't you owe us God? They don't say, well, we have faith and we're not going to doubt, so we're going to say, you know, God is definitely going to rescue us. No, no, no. They trust God and his word regardless of what happens next. See, if your faith is based on your circumstances, based on the peace you experience, the health you experience, the enjoyment that you experience, and if you trust God in those situations, but if they go, often your faith goes, because your faith is conditional. But these men trust God for who he is. Trust God despite the circumstance they're in. And in those amazing words, even if he does not rescue us, the real miracle of Daniel 3 has already happened. As one writer said, that there are three men who do not worship in Nebuchadnezzar's totalitarian state is a miracle of God. That the three were not devoured by the fire is no greater miracle. Now, you might be thinking, you might be here, you might call yourself a skeptic or a non-believer, you might be thinking, why would you give up your life for God? Why would you do that? And if you're a Christian here, you might be thinking, I don't know how they did this. I'm, I'm petrified of saying what I did on a Sunday at 5.30 in the office tomorrow. I don't know how I'd even do this. How do they do it? And Nebuchadnezzar's question is, who's the God who's going to rescue you now, boys? And as the heat intensifies, as the fire gets hotter, we're going to get an answer to these questions. Because as the three men are thrown in, Nebuchadnezzar says this, Look, I see four men, not tired, walking around in the fire, unharmed. And the fourth looks like a son of the gods. Then he calls them out and says in verse 27, and he looks at them, verse 27 says, Not a hair of their heads were singed. Their robes were unaffected and there was no smell of fire on them. What does this tell us? This epic moment is a, is a blueprint for those of us who are Christians. Now, it's not a guarantee that if you uh, go through the fires of persecution that you'll come out the other end. Because many Christians in the Bible and throughout church history have gone through the proverbial flames and they've not come out the other side. 
But it is a blueprint for us who are Christian because it tells us who God is when persecution and trials come. You might be asking, who's this fourth man in the flames? Uh, Nebuchadnezzar says it looks like a son of the gods. Some people say it's Jesus come early in the Bible. I don't think so. You can ask about me, ask me about that later. But what this fourth man shows is that God is with his people. That he didn't keep them out of the flames, but he found them and met them in them. That God is the comforter and the protector of his people. I said a moment ago, this fourth man I don't think is Jesus, but it points to what Jesus will do. Because anyone who's experiencing persecution right now knows one thing. That Jesus, when he came, he went through the flames, but he did not come out unsinged. He was beaten. He was attacked. He died and he experienced hell itself. So that any threat that was truly threatening in your life, sin, death, hell, could be gone. That anything that could have do damage, true damage in your life, was no longer possible. As one pastor put it, you can make it through the furnaces of your life because Jesus took the only furnace that can really burn you. Uh, during the era of the Soviet Union, uh, the KGB agents went uh, to ch- church to church. And one Sunday, one of the agents I went up, saw an older woman holding a cross in a church. And he went up to her and said, Grandmother, will you kiss the feet of the Communist Party leader? And she looked at him and she said, Yes, I'll kiss his feet. But you need to crucify him first. See, most leaders are like King Nebuchadnezzar, where they'll say, Worship or die. Whereas Jesus, the King of Kings, says, I will die so that you can worship me. And that truth, that good news, is why Christians say these words on the screen. That who can separate us from the love of Christ? Can affliction or anguish or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, because of you, we are being put to death all day long. We are counted as sheep to be slaughtered. No. In all these things, we are more than victorious through him who loved us. Let me go back to that original quote from Voice of the Martyrs. We need the persecuted church more than they need us. It's true that they need our financial support and prayers and that kind of thing. That's why we partner with them. But deep down, we need them. As one lady uh, who I used to go to church with, uh, we'll call her Sarah because I haven't got permission to say this from her. But she says she was a, became a Christian in Iraq. And she says being a Christian in Iraq was scary. But my faith was alive. She said when I came to Australia, being a Christian was easy. And my faith became soft. That we need the persecuted church. We need to hear their stories. We need to see how they were courageous in terrifying situations to give us the courage to speak up in our situations. We need to see the way that they have lost everything and yet there is a joy and a passion and a trust that they have, which I want. 
Personally, I want to share with you two stories that have had an impact on me. The first story is of a girl called Lana. Lana grew up, lives in Egypt and grew up in a Muslim family. And her, so she was in school, late high school, and she heard a friend of hers introduce her or listen to a radio and introduce her to this, this preacher talking about Jesus. And as she learned more and more and listened more and more, she realized that Jesus was not a messenger from God, but he was actually God himself who died for her sins and, and she became a Christian. When she told her family, her father struck her and beat her. Her mother said, you are not allowed to come to this table anymore because you are dead to us. But it got worse. Her family had organized for her to be kidnapped and then attacked and left for dead. But this is what she says. I'm in real danger, but I trust God because he is alive. My comfort is that it is only a short time I'm spending here on earth, but there is a long time that I'll spend with Jesus. We know that there'll come a time when there'll be no more suffering or sorrow. That is my hope in the Lord Jesus. I need Lana because she has lost everything and yet she has everything. The other story which... I go to is the story of Peter. Uh, Peter is an apostle of Jesus Christ. And uh, what I love about Peter, he speaks first and thinks later. Reminds me of myself. And uh, Peter was there with Jesus, and Jesus says, I'm about to die, and all of you are going to abandon me. He says, quick as a flash, not I, they might, I won't. I'll be loyal to you, with, to you to the end. And yet moments later, Jesus is arrested. And a little girl comes up to him and says, what? you a follower of Jesus? No, never knew him. And then someone else came and said, didn't you hang out with Jesus? No, never knew him. And then a third, didn't you? No, never knew him. And then the rooster crowed. And Peter had denied Jesus, denied even knowing him. And the guilt consumed him and he wept. Jesus died and then he rose again. And he intentionally wanted to see Peter. And he went up to Peter and said, after he'd risen from the dead and said, Peter, do you love me? Three times he asked, and he offered him forgiveness. And then he flagged the future for Peter's life, that it's going to be, if you want to follow me, it's going to be full of persecution. But Peter had experienced the forgiveness like no other. And that gives me comfort for the times when I'm too embarrassed, too afraid to speak up, or the times when I've denied knowing Jesus, that there is forgiveness on the table. And that forgiveness motivates you. It gives you the courage to go out there again and again. We need the persecuted church more than they need us. Because when you look at people like Lana, like Peter, like Richard Wormbrand and Sabina Wormbrand, like Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego, they have a trust, they have a faith in God, which I, I want. They, they know that this world is not all there is, but there is more to come that Jesus offers forgiveness and that he is with them in the flames. That they have a courage and a faith in face of fire. And I need them. I need them. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we ask for those right now who are faced with a decision to worship or die, we ask that in this very moment that your spirit would give them courage. 
And Lord, we pray as we hear the stories of the persecuted church around the world, we ask that we would learn from them, that we would be more like our brothers and sisters in Christ, because we don't know what's coming around the, few, around the corner here, but we pray, regardless of what happens, that we would trust you, that we would hold on to you, that you would be our everything. Amen. And we're going to sing, sing a song called I Have Decided to Follow Jesus right now. I don't know if you know this story, but it was written by a missionary who I believe went to India. He lost his wife. He lost his children. And when he was told, do not speak about Jesus, you need to give up, he wrote this song that I have decided to follow Jesus. No turning back. No turning back.